The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 4, 1 through 20. The word of God speaks to us. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in the parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This is God's word to us. Awesome. Thank you, Molly. Good evening. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Dave. I'm I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. I have uh, been out for a few weeks. I uh, got to go to a pastor's conference. We're part of a, a network called Acts 29, and Anna and I got to go to their uh, lead pastors and wives conference this past month, and um, then we did some camping as a family, um, which is always an adventure, but uh, I missed you guys a lot, and I'm, I'm really happy to be back with you tonight. Um, we're going to continue, uh, as Molly read, um, in the Gospel of Mark. We're going through this book, I think. This is like week eight, week seven. Does anybody know? Um, but uh, we're far enough in that I don't know how many weeks we've been in, but I know that we've got a ways to go. Um, we're, we've got 16 chapters, and that should take us all the way to Easter 2022, which is going to be really fun. We'll take a few breaks throughout, but uh, I'm going to pray for y'all. You pray for me. Let's pray with one another, for one another, and then we'll, we'll dive in to this well-known uh, but really rich parable. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for my friends, and we thank you for this moment tonight that by your sovereign grace, we're here. It's by no accident. You've led us here in this moment, and in your love and in your providence and in your mercy, you have um, have gifts for us tonight, you have healing, you have truth, and so we pray that we would be able to listen, that you would help us, Spirit, as we even see in this parable, have ears to hear, have have soft hearts. 
Would you do a work in us for your glory and for our joy? We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said, amen. I think if we were there 2,000 years ago in this moment, the first thing that would strike us would be the crowd. I mean, as we read, again, he began to teach beside the sea, right there, the second sentence, and a very large crowd gathered about him. Many theologians believe that this is actually the single largest crowd in the ministry of Jesus. The the largest crowd that ever came to hear him, that he ever ministered to, this is his highest attendance Sunday. Um, This is it. And we can feel that as we've been reading the Gospel of Mark, this momentum of his ministry. And more and more and more people are coming. And this is perhaps just the, the largest crowd. And that presents an obstacle to Jesus. There's so many people. They're, they're gathering around him. And his desire, his aim, we've seen up to this point in Mark, is yes, he heals. Yes, he casts out demon, some demons. But priority number one is to teach, to proclaim the good news of who he is and what that means. And those are one and the same. Like Jesus is described at the beginning of the Gospel of John as the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We might ask ourselves, what does God have to say? The answer to that question is Jesus. He's the Word embodied, what God has to say in the flesh, the Son of God, God himself. And so this parable is about the Word. It's about what Jesus says and who Jesus is. Really hearing, really receiving. He has something to share, but there is an obstacle that there are so many people. How will they hear? And Jesus, he, he doesn't just see an obstacle, he sees an opportunity. He does something that I think is quite innovative, and he just creates a, a new way to teach, I think, and he just gets a boat, and they don't stay on the shore. They go off into this cove so he can have some space to see this crowd to proclaim. And, and what's interesting, the GPS, uh, the GPS isn't in scripture, right? We don't know exactly where this took place, but Christian history and actually science gives us a real clue as to where this took place. I think I have a picture of it. It's called, named after this very moment now, the, the Cove or the Bay of Parables. It's actually just one mile south of Capernaum where Jesus was living at the time. So if we were going to walk there, it'd be like walking down to Ellis Island on 33rd. That's the distance between where Jesus is, is basing out of ministry and, and this cove of parables. But what's really interesting about this place is some Israeli scientists in the 70s, they did some tests and they found out that it is in a real amazing way a natural amphitheater. And then if you're in a boat out on that water just off the shore, the human voice without any effort carries hundreds of feet without effort and is, uh, it is just resounding so thousands of people could have heard as if God just made this cove for just this moment so that the Son of God could be heard because that's his aim here in this moment, to be heard, to teach. And I just imagine that I'm there. I want us actually, all of us, to imagine that we're there and just imagine that Jesus is in the, the, the hull of that ship 
He sat down. He's about to begin teaching. And let's say we're just a few feet behind him. And, and what we see is we see this beautiful Sea of Galilee glistening blue before us. But when the shore reaches the sea, the sea in a real way doesn't end because what we see is just a sea of people, the largest crowd we've ever seen in our life if we're living at that time. All different kinds of people. You have Jews and Gentiles. You have rich and poor and young and old and, and men and women. You have people there that are just self-righteous kind of religious elites and snobs and they're suspect and opposed of Jesus to Jesus and they're just there to keep tabs on him. You have sinners there that feel broken and desperate and they're really aware that they're, they're far from God and they long to hear some good news and hope from this ever more popular teacher. And Jesus looks at this crowd and he's aware that there's a whole range of, of hearing and understanding. And I, I just keep on thinking about the noise. In fact, I, I wanna invite you, even if you want to, to close your eyes and I want you to listen as we play for you maybe what that sounded like 2,000 years ago on this afternoon. but to me that's almost unrecognizable nowadays. It's been like a year and a half since I heard noise like that. I haven't been to a Thunder game or an OU game in a long time. It's been 20 years since I've been to a concert because I am old. Um, but there's something about a, a large crowd that there's just not anything like that noise. And yet... I think on a, on a soul level, hang with me for a moment, but even like on a, on a soul level, like we can be all alone and that's what life can sound like at times. A cacophony, a chorus of different voices that speak to us and all say perhaps different things, but we feel like we hear it all at once. Voices of consumerism, the, the 10,000 ads that each and every one of us hear every day that are saying, hey, to be happy, you need to own this. And I'm like, I do need a pillow cube. Why, how have I not lived without a pillow cube, right? <laughs> like, you know, these, these, we're exposed to all this every day. The voice of, of, of just shame that we might hear and just things that have happened to us in our past or, or the voice of addiction, the voice of wounds that speak to us. Our, our own head, the voice of the enemy that wants to accuse us. Culture screams in our ear. Media, whether it's 24-7 news, whichever one that you, uh, you know, <laughs> like to, to watch if you like to, um, or social media, right? These are loud voices that we hear continually and they can all just join together to feel a lot like that crowd noise. And we have a heart that feels noisy. And that crowd felt noisy. And yet, look at the first thing out of Jesus' mouth. Verse 3, he says, in an emphatic way, in a way with authority, as he's sitting in the hull of that, uh, at the bow of that boat, getting ready to teach, he says, listen. Imagine his voice carrying over the water. And as he begins to speak, 
people do. They haven't heard any authority like that in their entire life. And and the noise of that crowd, it hushes as they listen. And Jesus is aware that as he speaks, that a few different things are going to happen, that people are going to listen in different ways. And he desperately wants people to listen because listening isn't just about our ears. It's about our hearts. I was... uh, I mentioned I was camping with my family, and um, there was a moment where we were camping with some friends, and we couldn't find campsites next to each other. We were about four campsites away. And my two-year-old son was running away from me to another campsite where some friends were, and I, I, didn't, I didn't want him to go yet. Um, and so I said, uh, he's two. I don't know if I said that. Um, but he's two. And I said, Deacon. And he kept on running, and I got louder. Deacon! He kept on running, and then I I promise I lowered my voice to just over a whisper, and I said, Deacon, I have ice cream. (laughs) That kid was like 40 yards away, and he stopped in his tracks and then slowly turned to me smiling. Like, he was processing, like, we don't have a freezer. How does my dad have ice cream? I think he's trying to trick me, but I really love ice cream more than I love listening to my dad, evidently. Um, And, you know, it's like I was... I, I was joking around in the early services, like, I don't even get him in trouble because he's our fourth kid and I'm going to be 40. We're functionally grandparents with Deacon. <laughs> he just, like, gets away with, well, I think his disobedience is cute. I'm like, oh, that's, he's so precious. He's not listening to me. Um, <laughs> but maybe one of the ways I let him off the hook is because I saw myself in him in that moment. I'm like, oh, man, don't we have selective hearing on a soul level? Don't we all have our hearts tuned in to hear what we want to hear? And that's what parables are about. See, parables are all about listening and how we're listening. And I think as we look at this parable, what we really need to do is just resolve, whether you're a pastor in a pulpit in this moment or you're maybe coming to the church for the first time in a long time, this is all about listening to the voice of God and having a a, an ear that actually hears because the secret to an ear that actually hears is having a heart that's open to receive the truth that's being graciously given. And again, I think to begin to, to look at what Jesus is saying here, it actually uh, kind of invites us to start in the middle of the story because his disciples ask a question that I think is a good place to start, which is, hey, Jesus, why parables? What's the deal with the parables? Parable is is a mashup of two Greek words, I believe, and it it essentially means to lay down beside for the sake of comparison. And there's there's kind of a richer purpose than just that in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was a, it was not the only uh, way that he taught, but it was one of the the most purposeful ways, or I should say the most common ways that he taught. There's like 60 plus times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus uses parables as a tool to teach. And, And what really starts in verse 10 here as Jesus shares and answers that question, hey, Jesus, why parables? Like, to be honest, it's a really difficult scripture to understand. It's one of the hard sayings of Jesus. It's certainly one of the more difficult, most difficult passages in all of Mark. So I think we should take a look at it because understanding it is going to unlock understanding what Jesus has to stay here, say here and even in the coming weeks as we look at more parables. So so let's look at this moment, picking up in verse 10. It says, and when he was alone, 
Those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, hey, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But those outside, everything's in parables. So that, and then and Jesus quotes here Isaiah 6. He says, they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So let's just look at some context real quick to to help us understand what what Jesus is saying. Going to see Jesus had become like the thing to do. Case in point, the, the very, very, very large crowd, right? And so the 12 are there, these, these leaders that Jesus has identified, but we need to pay attention that it says the others with the 12 too. So Jesus has gone from like this huge crowd that's just coming to see what this, a crowd begets a crowd, right? Crowds draw crowds. And so Jesus is with a group here and maybe even a large group, nothing like this huge crowd he was with earlier, but it's a different group. It's his disciples, not only his 12, but others with the 12, and they're asking him, hey, what's, what's the deal with parables? Why do you teach in parables? And so Jesus, surrounded by women and men who are near him, who are following him, who are embracing him, he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But those on the outside, Jesus said, everything is in parables. And so... You could imagine that people came to see Jesus. And some people came to see Jesus and they thought, and maybe this guy really is the Messiah. Maybe this is the promised savior of the world we've been waiting for. And they come and they hear him tell these stories and they leave just saying, that was just a poor carpenter from Nazareth who was just telling basic stories about stuff that we do every day. Clean houses, herd sheep, sow seed. Then other people came just to check it out and say, what's the deal with this poor carpenter from Nazareth that's telling stories? And they heard what he had to say and they left saying, could this be the Messiah, the Savior of the world? And Jesus is saying in a real way, hey, when you come to that realization, these disciples that are around him, that have embraced him, that are near him, Jesus is saying, hey, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. And what he's saying in a real way in this moment, hey, is that to you I've been given, that he's the secret of the kingdom, that that he is the son of God, the Messiah. And so they're, they're asking him, hey, what's the deal with the parables? And he's saying, hey, to you, they're there to bring insight and understanding because you have me. But there's another group, those on the outside and everything's in parables. But these are people who are opposed to Jesus or they're not interested really or they're just there to get something from him. They don't really want to receive him and Jesus is drawing a parallel and this is where the Isaiah 6 verse comes because Isaiah was was used by God as a prophet to proclaim truth but he was proclaiming truth in judgment to a people who had heard truth plainly but had hardened their hearts again and again and rejected God and so what a parable does 
as a tool in the ministry of Jesus. It's a lot like an EKG, right? An electrocardiogram that, that shows the heart. And Jesus is saying, hey, if, if you have embraced me and received me, if your heart is open, that a parable is going to bring understanding and insight. It's going to bring life. But to those on the outside who have opposed me, rejected me in their disbelief, it's going to show a hard heart. In essence, what Jesus is saying is that the condition of your heart determines your openness to truth, and a parable is going to help reveal that. So with that in mind, let's begin with our time we have left to work through this parable. And we'll take it in five points, and we're just going to go through it simply. And the first thing we need to see is the sower. The parable begins with the sower in verse 3. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And then Jesus plainly explains it in verse 14. He says, and the sower sows the word. And so the seed is the word, and it's implied here that the sower is, is Jesus himself, first and primarily, but it also can represent anybody that's proclaiming the word of God, whether it's a preacher in a pulpit or a parent by the bed of their three-year-old as they read the Jesus Storybook Bible together. They're sowing seed. But what Jesus the sower is sowing is, is the word. And I don't know if you're like me, but when we read the story, when I read the story, I think, like, this is not a very efficient way to farm, right? <laughs> like, we have six raised beds in our, I think so, six, nine. We have nine raised beds in our backyard, and it would be funny if we just went out there in the spring and we took a bag of seed and just kind of dumped it, and then we're like, we'll come back later, see, see how this plays out, right? Like, that would, that would be an interesting way to garden, yeah, I think what's important to, to note is that this actually is how farming took place in the, in the ancient Near East. This is really how farming took place at the time. The, the land wasn't cleared of stone or thorns or even plowed until afterwards, and their plowing afterwards wasn't anything like what we see today. But more importantly, in, in, in a beautiful way, this is how Jesus the sower sows the seed of his word. He is generous and abundant in spreading his good news. He's not stingy or selective, but everywhere, every nook and cranny of the earth, it's his desire to sow the seed of the word, who he is, what he's done, and what it means for us. It doesn't matter if people are hostile or indifferent or uninterested. He wants to share and spread that word all the same. My heart goes to a passage again in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, where it reminds us that his word won't return void. His purposes are always accomplished. The, the seed of the sower is never wasted. And that, I think, is a beautiful encouragement to those of us who are part of Frontline Church. I think there's a really good takeaway for us if we're Christians from the get-go, that we would be people that as a church in our lives with our friends and our neighbors and in and, and, and our community and and just that we would sow seed like the sower like Jesus here. That we would be generous and faith-filled and expectant and spread the word everywhere with the posture of who knows what God might do. And as the seed is sown, we see these four responses. That's our second point. We see the first response, and it's the hard heart. Verse 4, the parable reads, 
And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And Jesus explains in verse 15, he says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the word away that's sown in them. Evidently, in ancient Israel, among farm fields, there were, there were paths that were long and, and winding and narrow. And there were paths that were created over time as people walked and animals, uh, you know, walked with their hooves and beat down and, and carts with wheels passed by. And over time, over the years, that these paths were packed down into to hard pavement, much like a sidewalk. And so as people sowed this, as sowers would sow seed, that some would fall on these paths around the field. And it was hard packed ground. And the seed would bounce off this hard-packed ground, and birds would come, obviously, and, and snatch it up, like a crow stealing and destroying the crop of a farmer, or like the blue jays come and steal my blackberries, like birds just are, are come and they, they steal. This is a picture, though, of spiritual warfare, that God is working in sowing, and Satan is working in stealing the seed. My mind went back to a book that I read 20 years ago for the first time when I was in high, longer than that, God, 22 years ago for the first time. My favorite to this day, my favorite C.S. Lewis book, a book called The Screwtape Letters. And there's a story, The Screwtape Letters is a really interesting book if you haven't read it. It's this obviously fictional account of a series of letters written from a seasoned demon to an apprentice. And he's training him on, on how to, to oppress people. And in chapter one, there's a story about a man who this demon is assigned to, and he goes to a museum to, to read for some solitude, for some silence, some time to think. And as he's in this museum, his heart begins to move towards big questions about who God is and his eternal standing before God and, and, and his life and its meaning and, and, and where he's going to go when he dies. What his life has meant to that point? What truly matters? And he's asking big questions in his solitude and as he's beginning to, to think and meditate on the meaning of life in his own life. And this demon screw tape is beginning to, to panic because he sees the trajectory of these thoughts. And so he seeks to distract them, and he, and he writes in the book, he says in the book that uh, I, I went after the part of this man that I had under the, uh, the most control, under my most control, which was his stomach. And I reminded him, hey, these are big questions. They can't be processed on an empty stomach. And kind of tempts him to, to lay those questions down. And, and the book reads, as he leaves the museum, once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and the number 73 bus going by. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten, to, and I had gotten him to an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he is shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, and by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. I think Lewis's fiction here is illustrating the teaching of Jesus. And what I had never thought or connected until this week when several commentaries brought it up 
was that there, there very well may be a connection to the hard heart and the hard path and how they're both beat down and, and packed down and hardened by a busyness in life. That people can beat their hearts into a hard pavement through frenetic activity and we go and we go and we go and we're always on the move and we never slow down and God is speaking to us all the while and the seed is being cast but we, we run at such a pace that we have our ears plugged and our eyes closed to what God might be doing and we struggle with presence I feel and by presence I mean really being where we are and we struggle with busyness, being overwhelmed and overscheduled more right now than any time in history. Even now tonight, we, we might really desire to, to be open and present and listen, and yet we're thinking about that business deal on Tuesday or that party on Wednesday or what we're even going to eat for dinner tonight and in our lack of presence and in our busyness of our hearts and the busyness of our lives, there's a, there's a hardening to miss out on what God wants to sow. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think it's really common in busyness and frenetic activity to just stiff arm God's invitation and his moving towards us. We might be in high school tonight and say, hey, when I get to college, that's when I'm gonna, you know, take my spiritual life seriously. I'll, I'll, I'll move towards Jesus when I get in college. And then we're in college and, and then the logic goes, hey, when I, get, when I get out of college or then when I get married, then, and, and then you get married and you think, well, when we have kids, that's when we're gonna make our, our spiritual life a priority. I feel an invitation from God, but it's just my life is too hectic or busy now for any of that stuff. You know, I'll get around to it later. Oh, when, then our kids, when our kids are older, then we'll make it. It's just so hard when you have little kids to actually make room for this stuff in your life. When the kids are out of the house And the heartbreak of logic like that is that it's spiritual suicide. We wouldn't say like, hey, I'm gonna, when I, whenever I have time, I'm going to drink and I'm going to eat. I'm just too busy to get around to it. But Jesus said that, that man doesn't live just by better alone, but by the very words that come from the mouth of God. And so if you're here tonight and that's been your story and you've just felt like you've been stiff-arming God and you're, you've been saying, hey, I'm too busy for you, that his, as we began today, it's true, our call to worship is true for you right in this moment, that his mercies are new for you today. He's like a father waiting for you with open arms to say, hey, I long to be with you. I have forgiveness for you and grace. I have healing for the brokenness in you. I want you to come to me and know abundant life and true rest. Don't harden your hearts as you hear his voice. Run from everything else you're putting your hope in. Run to him. The second type of heart we see is the, the shallow heart. Verse 5, 
Jesus says in the parable, the other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and immediately it sprang up. But since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. And Jesus explains in verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endures for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So in, in this region in Israel, there, there is soil that looks like any other soil, but in reality it's only two or three inches thick, and it's just a thin layer of soil that's sitting on a rock bed of limestone. And so we see in this parable that seed falls in a place like this, and it, it shoots up. And it looks good on the surface, but below the surface is an entirely a different story. The roots are, are shallow, and then the sun beats down, and, and the heat of the sun causes this plant to wither away. And Jesus tells us this heat represents tribulation, which is great trouble and suffering and persecution, just a hostility and attack, a mistreatment because of faith in him, because of receiving the word. We talked about this several months ago, but I think it's important to remember the first people to receive this, this book. It was, I, I believe, in the mid-50s A.D. It's the church in Rome, the early church, and they are, they are the early church that's gathering in the midst of the first great and, and one of the most horrendous persecutions of the church in all of history, a persecution under the emperor Nero, where Christians' families are being torn apart and burnt alive and fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum. And so tribulation and persecution because of receiving the word was a real threat. We can just imagine people sharing their faith and people being really interested and in, in receiving the word of Jesus with a joy and then actually realizing just what is at stake 2,000 years ago. They can be fed to a lion, thrown in prison, and, and them just counting the cost of that and saying, hey, it's, it's not worth it. I can't experience that kind of pain or, or heartache. I'm, I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with this Christianity. And the truth is that the persecution of the church, the tribulation because of receiving the word, is, is more of a reality today than it was 2,000 years ago. Opendoorsusa.org, which is a website I encourage all of you to check out, helps give us really great tools to know how to support our brothers and sisters in places like India and China and Iran. This is... Some information from that organization. They say the persecution of Christians is increasing year over year. Across the globe, more than 245 million believers, believers face intimidation, prison, even death for their faith in Jesus. That's one in nine Christians worldwide suffering under the hand of their persecutors. And I, I think there actually are some, some real and present ways that we, even in Edmond, Oklahoma, in 2021, can experience tribulation and persecution because of our faith. You might have a broken relationship or struggle at work. And yet, 
That's just for me. If I'm like, hey, what do we do with this part of this parable? I think the best thing for us to do is just covenant commit to, to pray more for our brothers and sisters around the world who are, who are literally facing life and death. And as they share the gospel, that it would fall on good soil, not shallow soil, that people would say in Iran, in China, in India, when they hear the good news of who Jesus is, when they receive that seed, that they would be like a Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They would say, hey, God can deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I still belong to him. And that through the, the suffering of the saints, God has always been faithful to work mightily to bring about his kingdom. And that those who are honored enough to suffer in this life, when all things are made new, what reward will they have? They will be honored beyond measure for what they suffered because of the name of Jesus. So let's pray for them. And let's pray that in those places, people receive Jesus and the, that he helps them run the course, come what may. The next heart we see is the divided heart. Verse seven, other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And Jesus explains the parable in verse 18. He says, the others are the ones sown among thorns. They're those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Much like the shallow heart, the divided heart looks good on the surface. It looks good for a season. It looks good for a little while, but under the surface, it's a different story. That It's not just the seed of the word down there, but there's, there's thorns, there's weeds. And alongside the, the seed of the word, Jesus tells us what these are, these thorns. It's the cares of the world, which literally can, can be translated the distraction of this age. The distraction of this age, the cares of the world. Man, do we not live in a time where there are distractions in this age. He also says the deceitfulness of riches. If I could just make this amount, if I could buy this house, if I could own this one thing, then I'll be okay. And then before long, we buy things that we, we don't really need to impress people. We don't really know with money that we never really had. And we miss out on the joy of contentment and the blessing of generosity. The deceitfulness of riches. See, I think this third one to me in my life, and I, I think to us living in this city at this time, this is, this is the scariest one. I, uh, a, a long time ago, um, I used to, uh, for fun, um, try just train martial arts, try to train martial arts is probably the proper way to put it. That's what I was about to say. Uh, but, uh, and I used to train with this guy named Seth, and Seth uh, owned a gym here in Edmond, still does, and he's, he's super fun. He was a little bit like the bad guy coach on Karate Kid. He's just very intense, um, but I liked him a lot. And, and Seth one time was uh, demonstrating on me in class, 
And this is the deal about jujitsu. There's two different kinds of chokes. There's an air choke, and it's really obvious when you're being choked with an air choke because you can't breathe, right? And so you can't breathe, and you just tap out. You say, I give up. But there's a second type of choke, and that's the type of choke that Seth was demonstrating on me. It's, it's called a, a blood choke. And this, this type of choke, it cuts off your, your arteries, right? I, I'm really bad at anatomy, but it's like, it's your jugulars, right? It cuts off blood flow to the brain. And you can breathe when it's happening, but it's not good, right? And what will eventually happen, and what happened to me, is Seth said, hey, when, you know, when the choke gets tight, when you feel it, go ahead and tap on me, let me know. And so I have my hand on Seth's shoulder, and he's teaching the class how to properly do it, and then... I don't know what happened, but the next thing I know, I'm laying on the mat. Everybody else in the class is gathered around me, and Seth is holding both of my legs up in the air so the blood rushes back to my head. And I was like, I don't know what happened. I never felt anything, but I got choked out. And Seth was, he was actually a really nice guy and is a really nice guy, and he, he, let, he didn't mean to do that. He let go. The thorns don't let go. And that's why it's dangerous. It's, the thorns are a type of blood choke where they, they happen subtly and slowly, but you don't really realize how tight the grip is happening. You might be aware of it, but you don't really know what's at stake. And that life itself, spiritual life itself, fruit is being choked out. And this is what's scary about this. Just notice that really, remember, the hard heart, the first group, the hard soil, the seed on the path, they, they, they're really aware that they're rejecting the word. They say, no, I'm too busy, it's dumb, not for me, not now at least. And then same thing with the shallow heart, right? They receive it at first with joy, but then there's a clear rejection. Too much tribulation, too much persecution. No, but what's really scary about the divided heart is the divided heart never says no to the word. This is a heart that might think it loves Jesus, even participates in spiritual activity, but below the surface, what's really taken root isn't a love for God, it's love for other things, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus, would you help us? Would you help our hearts not be divided? We want them to be wholly yours. And although there's been these three kind of hard truths, what I love about this parable is that it's a good story. It ends in a really miraculous, beautiful way. Let's look at the the final heart, the fruitful heart. Verse 8, And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And Jesus clearly and simply explains in verse 20, But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. What does this look like? Jesus says it means to accept, which, which that means to embrace and obey. And then when we do that with the word, what happens is we bear fruit. 
And I don't know a lot about farming today, and I certainly don't know a ton about farming in the ancient Near East, but I, I learned that if you're like a really good farmer, your crop is going to have five to 15-fold. Like if you had 15-fold, like you were, you know, talking to your neighbors about it. Like, Guys, my harvest was amazing. And yet Jesus begins with double that, 30, and then 60, and then 100. What's really clear here is this isn't just like a smart farmer with some great new tech. This is actually the, the work of God, the wonders and the miracle. He's at work. This is no ordinary harvest. This is God doing something that only he can do. This is, the harvest is, is always a picture of the kingdom of God breaking in. And what we see here in this last example of soil is Jesus breaking into a life and bringing life. It's the story of God and his life-giving power, resurrection power. And what's the fruit that comes from that? Well, Paul gives us some beautiful insight in Galatians chapter 5, 22. What are the, the fruits of the Spirit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, self-control, and gentleness. Paul says, against such things there is no law. So what does it look like when the kingdom of God breaks into a life and, and bears fruit when the word is accepted and embraced and obeyed? Well, it, it looks like these things. And so if you're part of Frontline, this is your homework. It's, it's your homework to, to actually take these fruits of the spirit that Paul talks about and examine our own life and ask the Holy Spirit, hey, Holy Spirit, will you show me where these fruits are bearing in my life? I want to be encouraged. I want to give God glory. But what's, what's even, I think, sweeter than that is that we wouldn't do that just for our own life, but really do this for your friends, your gospel community in this church. Take some time. Just take a few minutes to pray about people that you're in community group with or they're in your discipleship group and, and, and review, prayerfully review Galatians 5, 22 through 23. And, and as you're praying for this person and lifting them up, say, hey, God, would you reveal the ways that they're bearing fruit that I can encourage them? And then you can go grab a, a drink with them or, or send them a text and say, hey, I just want to show you one of the ways that you're gentle and it blesses people in our church. It blesses people in our community. It blesses people in our city. I want to show you, I want to, I want to hold up, I want to celebrate and honor you for ways that, that the, the fruit of love is bearing in your life and how it's a, a blessing to others. I want to share that with you and encourage you and honor you because of that. I think that'd be a really sweet thing to do for one another. Ultimately, this is a story about listening. It's Jesus intensely, because he's so loving, commanding us to hear, to receive, to embrace and obey so that we can have life. Let's pray that he does that in our lives and in this city. Let's stand.